Our text today is Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. And when they entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to another side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this space and this time in your word. Lord, we pray as we study it today that it is impressed upon our hearts and our minds and our lips and that we will carry it with us everywhere we go. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning indeed. There was a phrase that was often said when I worked kind of in the big corporate world, and that phrase was, that's just the cost of doing business. Some of you have probably either heard this or said this in your professional careers, but the idea basically is that when employees come across something that usually is expensive and that needs to be done or purchased, or maybe you have to travel somewhere, they verbally write it off as the cost of doing business. And it usually revolves around some type of a consequence for getting done what you need to get done. I remember once having to travel, we were supposed to go somewhere in Italy, and I think it was Rome, and then the airport wouldn't allow us to stay overnight, so we ended up at an island off of Italy last minute, and the hotels were very expensive because it was the only place we could stay. And somebody that I worked with said, it's just the cost of doing business because there was a consequence to us not being able to stay where we were originally going to stay, and that consequence meant that we had to spend more money. But ultimately, this statement is about consequences, and doing business implies consequences. Financial, time-related. Is that speaker on in here? Do you want to take, yeah, thank you very much. Sorry, I'm not sure if, it was, if it's piping in here or not. Um, but, but ultimately, ultimately, it's a statement about consequences. So like I was saying, doing business implies consequences. Uh, actually, all of our activities in life have consequences. Have you really thought about consequence? Everything you do has a consequence. Usually, we associate that word with negativity. But that's not the actual definition. You see, a consequence is just the result of something else happening. There can be positive consequences and there can be negative consequences. And everybody here weighs consequences in our minds, at least we should, especially teenage boys, teenage men, you should all practice weighing consequences in your mind. But we weigh these consequences in our mind when we make decisions. And so that's an important part of our discussion today and it's also going to be an important part of how we live our lives, knowing that all of our actions have consequences. And you see, in general, our nature is to do what? It's to avoid negative consequences for things in our life. We don't want things that will have a negative impact on our life to affect us. So this may seem like an odd way to open a sermon about miracles and discipleship, but bear with me. I think we're gonna be able to connect all of these dots in the next two or three hours. 
There we go, at least a laugh. So our, if you remember our passage last week, we discussed miracles. And our, our passage this week continues that discussion of miracles. Uh, Jesus last week healed the leper, and he healed the servant of the centurion. And we talked about last week that the reason that Christ performed miracles, they were outward signs of his divinity. They were witnessed by many people. They were proof for the people experiencing Jesus that he was who he said he was. But we also talked that they had larger implications. It wasn't just that people were being healed physically, that Christ's healing acknowledges a spiritual healing that people also need. We've discussed before as well that all sickness, all evil, all things that actually require healing in our world are a direct result of Adam's fall, of, of the fall of mankind. They're a result of sin. And that's hard sometimes for us to grasp onto, this idea that, that all of our ailments, all of the difficulty that we experience in life is a result of sin. Now, that may be difficult to hear, but it's certainly true. Would you mind checking on that, Garen? Thank you very much. I think it's the one that's in here on top there. Thank you. But see, all of our ailments are because of sin. This may be difficult to accept, but it is true. Now, it's not tit for tat, but the fact that evil exists in our world is due to man's fall. So, we have to keep that in mind when we think about these things and when we think about Jesus' healing, because he's not just healing these physical ailments. He's healing people spiritually as well. And it's not just physical healing that he's healing and spiritual healing, but it's grief as well. How many here of all of you have experienced deep grief. I know every single one of you has because I've experienced some of it with you. We've shared in these things together. You see, grief manifests itself in so many ways. We see it in illness. We see it in sadness. We see it in tragedy. Almost all of our troubles can be grief-inducing. Everybody here has experienced this. I know that I have. This too, grief, is a byproduct of sin. We grieve because we hurt, because difficulty and disease have an impact on us. So grief and trouble and illness, these aren't things we can just get through by ourselves. We've all probably tried, and I would guess that if this was interactive, we could all talk about how no, none of those times when we've tried to get through these things by ourselves have actually ever worked, right? Sometimes we just try to drown our griefs and sorrows in really unhealthy ways. It could be substances. It could have, uh, mine was productive work. I'm working really hard. I'm doing a lot. Ah, I don't have time to think about these things. We can actually talk ourselves into what we call productive activities that drown grief, that drown sorrow. And we can rationalize it because like, well, at least it's not drugs and alcohol. I could be, I could be like those guys over there, I'm doing better, I'm working a lot, or I, I exercise a ton, or whatever those things happen to be. But see, at the end of the day, none of those things can actually save us from our grief, save us from our illness, save us from our trouble. Instead, they're just like a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, which never really works in the long run. And why is that? Well, We've talked about this many times before. If we only treat the symptom and not the cause, we're not actually getting to the root. And of course, the root is sin, and the root is something we can't solve by ourselves. We need Jesus for this. So that's what brings us back to what we discussed last week, this idea that Christ's healing is more than just the healing of your cold or the, the healing of your leprosy. It is bringing you spiritual healing as well. It is complete soul healing. 
And that's where we pick up today in verse 14, chapter 8. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. So Jesus enters Peter's house and sees Peter's mother-in-law. We probably assume she's a widow if she's living with them. And Jesus sees her sick. So what does he do? 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So he just heals her. Nobody asks, nobody begs. He gives her exactly what she needs. And if that wasn't impressive enough, if you remember for last week, we talked about how easy it is to miss small words in the text. It's easy to gloss over parts of the narrative without paying detailed attention to it. There's another one easy to miss in our text here in verse 15. It's easy to get focused on this fact that she was healed, which, which is easy to get focused on because it's miraculous. But there's something else that happens. What happens after she's healed? Verse 15 again, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. She rose and she began to serve him. Jesus heals her and what is her first response? Service. It's so easy to miss a statement that is so critical because it's actually the foundation of all of our healing that comes through Jesus, the soul healing that we get through Jesus. Because Christ restores all things. He makes all things new. He makes us a new creation. We were just repeating that when I gave you the assurance of pardon after our confession of sin. That's why we joyously say thanks be to God, because he doesn't leave us where we were. He's restored us from that place into a, a new creation, a new life. He gives us life by removing the penalty of our sin. It's why we get to be joyous in difficult times. It's why we can live as rowdy cavaliers. It's why we can do things that we do as Christians and the world thinks that we're a little bit or a lot of it nuts. See, the point is, Christ heals us so that we can serve him. It's worth repeating. Christ heals us so we can serve him. That is so backwards to the way that the world does things. Usually, we fix something, right, about us because it's for us. Just taking a little bit of time right now to work on myself, make myself a little bit better because it's all about me. You see, Jesus doesn't want you to work on yourself for yourself. He wants to, to restore us to do life so we can actually stop thinking about ourselves so much. It's really amazing if we care for everybody else's needs and everybody else was caring for if everyone was loving their neighbors everyone's needs get met it's really really a wonderful thing it's part of the reason i'm so adamant on building the kingdom of god here but the point is this is an attitude of action and service that actually is the foundation of our faith in christ the text continues verse 16 that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick you see, they bring these, these people to Jesus, many of them. They had demons and they were sick. You see, Jesus is still doing this same thing, right, for us. He's casting out our demons and he's healing our spiritual sickness. But there's an important part in this verse too. It says the word many. See, Jesus didn't heal everybody, but he did heal the many. And that, that whole, he didn't heal everybody, that's a whole other sermon and a whole other discussion and we should absolutely talk about it. It's really important. But why? Why did he heal the many in this particular 
in this particular situation? Well, verse 17 tells us, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. See, Matthew is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He's actually quoting a section of chapter 53 with the assumption that the people that he's talking to, the readers that he's writing to, know their Old Testament. They know their prophecy. The Jews knew the prophecy that Isaiah had laid forth. So he's he's quoting something here, and he's using it also as a proof text. Jesus came to do these things because it fulfills what Isaiah said the Messiah was going to fulfill. A little excerpt of 53, Isaiah 53, uh, 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. Literally goosebumps. It's crazy. This is this incredibly beautiful piece of scripture. Especially when you know who the suffering servant is. What he has come to do for you. Smitten by God. Afflicted pierced for our transgressions, borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Your God not only chose you, not only chose you from before the foundation of the world, but he has borne your griefs. Can you imagine? He's carried your sorrows. He's healed all of our diseases. He restores each and every one of us to himself. This is why the many had to be healed then. They were healed and restored because it fulfilled a part of Isaiah's prophecy. It was, it was beyond, beyond question. We're not talking one or two people, many, groups. You see, the people who Matthew is writing about, the scenario that Matthew is writing about, it took place. These people were experiencing it firsthand. They were living, breathing, seeing, touching people that could reach out and physically experience this. It's backed up by witness testimony, and it all comes to point to who Jesus is and and what his divinity is. Can you imagine being a witness to this? Can you imagine being aware of prophecy? Because you're Jewish, you're familiar with the Torah, you're familiar with the prophecy, you're familiar with the fact that it's been like 400 years since anybody's prophesied. It's this period of waiting. It's a big deal. And here comes Jesus, and he starts fulfilling prophecy, and you can see it. You can feel it. It's your friends. It's your friend who had a demon cast out. It's your friend who was healed. Maybe it was you. Can you imagine what that experience must have been, how terrifying that experience. That is the fear and awe of the Lord. See, it's restoration with live witnesses. It's proof of who Christ is. It was proof for them, and it's proof for us. And what I can imagine, I can imagine, because there's nothing new under the sun, and we all kind of act the same way, 
no matter how many thousands of years it had been, you can imagine there were people who probably wanted to get on the Jesus bandwagon, right? Something new, something big, it's powerful, it pops up. We see this all the time now. We see this all the time with people who want to be part of the next big thing, especially if you can be an early adopter. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Jesus had crowds following him. People were, were curious. I would imagine people were terrified. Some people probably thought he was a madman. Some people were most certainly convinced he was the Messiah. They're coming to see what this whole thing is all about. He's got these crowds. They follow him everywhere he goes. And you have to remember, at the very end of last week's section that we read, it said that he spoke with authority. He spoke with authority that wasn't his. It was God's authority. So there's something different about the way this person speaks, about the way that Jesus speaks. So he's speaking and interacting in a way that people had not experienced before, even the religious people. These weren't, these weren't stupid people. They were surrounded by scribes and Pharisees and people that knew Jewish law and knew the Torah and, and, and prayed to God each day. Verse 19, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It's important to note that it's a scribe that says this. We talked last week a little bit about scribes. These were, were learned Jewish men. They still are now if you were in Orthodox Judaism that handwrite Torah scrolls. They're written on dried animal skin. They're sewn together. And if one letter, one Hebrew letter, is out of place, part of the ink has broken off, it makes the Torah scroll treif, which is just a word that means unclean, because in a legal, legalistic religious system, things like cleanliness really matter. We talked about cleanliness in the leper last week. So if you had a misplaced letter, one misplaced letter in God's holy word, the scroll is now unclean. So, so scribes had to know God's word. They had to know where every single letter was. They had to be able to copy these things reliable. So it's, it's important to note that it's a scribe that says to Jesus, says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You can also assume that this scribe probably knew Old Testament prophecy pretty well because he had a clear understanding of Scripture. I actually think this becomes an apologetic, uh, a, a, a proof for the accuracy and the truthfulness of the story. This is a member of the Jewish religious elite saying, Rabbi, teacher, I will follow you wherever we go. Now, we don't know much about this, heart, this scribe. We don't know much about where his heart is. We don't know much about where his faith is. But what we do know is Jesus' response. And Jesus' response, I think, gives us some insight into this scribe. Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus tells him that foxes have a place to go sleep, and birds have nests, but he, the Messiah, has no place to lay his head. He doesn't have a bed. He doesn't have a home. He's basically homeless. But he's not just making a statement about his living situation. He's actually telling the scribe the cost of discipleship. He's telling him the cost and the consequence of being a follower. If you want to follow me wherever I go, you too will not have a home. Because it's easy to jump on the bandwagon, right? When, when we're just like, I'm going to pick and choose a little bit of the things. We usually want to jump on the bandwagon and we want to do it on our terms. 
This is where we get and why I criticize that kind of big Eva entertain you church world. It's all about Jesus on your terms. It's about your personal relationship with Jesus. You all should have a relationship with Jesus. But your relationship with Jesus should draw you into the body in a place of action, not just your personal private relationship that you and Jesus have that's just between the two of you. Because what happens with that is that becomes this internal thing that becomes all about you, and it's, it's my little protective thing that I'm going to hold on to because it's about me and Jesus. What it does is it just means Jesus is another experience you picked how you wanted to engage with. But that's not what Christ demands of us. He demands us to be part of a body and part of a community and to be accountable to each other. You see, when we think about our personal Jesus or we think about Jesus my way, it's all about how that experience made me feel. Oh, that service really moved me. Or if we pick religious organizations because of their programmatic offerings. This isn't just another thing to buy a la carte stuff from. It's a body to participate in. And it has consequences. It has consequences. This is what Jesus is addressing directly with the scribe. He's telling him, if you really want to follow me, there's going to be some consequences. Like you say, I will follow you wherever you go. I don't have a home. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to live by the words that you say? There's not going to be a place to lay your head. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. If you want to follow me, there's real life consequences. It continues in verse 21. Another one of the disciples said to me, Lord, let me go first and bury my father, which seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? See, Jesus just gets done telling the scribe that, that there's this big cost to following him. So then what happens? The next disciple comes up with his deal, and he's like, hey, by the way, I'm also happy to follow you, but I got some stuff I need to take care of first. I need to go bury my father, which to most of us here seems like a very reasonable request. Hey, Jesus, happy to be here, but let me take care of my business, and I'll catch up with you guys down the road. So what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a pretty direct and what feels like a potentially harsh statement. Just leave the dead to bury the dead. I mean, how does that even work anyways? They're dead. Can they bury themselves? I don't understand. If you go somewhere and you see dead people burying themselves, pray more. <laughs> well, we have to understand what's really actually being asked here. The disciple is not actually asking to go bury his father immediately. Most likely, this disciple's father is actually alive. Now, you may say, Craig, how do you know this? And I'd say, that's a great question. To know this, we actually have to understand Judaism, and we have to understand burial customs that come from Judaism. See, in Judaism, in Orthodox Judaism today and Judaism then, if somebody dies, when somebody dies, ideally, you bury them on the same day. This happens in Orthodox circles today. I used to study weekly. There are groups of rabbis that are paid just to be scholars and then teach other Jews about their Judaism, predominantly in the Orthodox circles. I used to study with this guy years ago, really nice man, and their three-year-old died in the doctor's office. They took their daughter to go to the doctor, and the child died in the doctor's office. It was tragic, and they had a funeral the same day. Uh, I went to that funeral. It was a, it was a very tragic situation. 
But it still happens today where Orthodox Jews will bury their dead the same day. And then after that, after that, there's a period of seven days of mourning. It's called Shiva, which is the Hebrew word for seven. They did not get particularly creative with the names. Shiva just means seven. And seven days, a house of mourning, if somebody close to you dies, mirrors are covered, clothes are torn, the, the, the Jewish religious were, uh, prayer services, the three prayer services are done from the house, and people bring food, and the idea is to have community over in these things. But, but the point is, you don't leave the house during that time. So if this man's father had actually died, he wouldn't be talking to Jesus right now. He would have either been digging a hole and burying his father, or he would have been sitting in a house of mourning for seven days. So what he's really saying, what he's really saying to Jesus is, I need some more time at home. Let me spend some more time with my old man. And then, because he's probably old, once he passes, I will bury him and I will come meet you. And, and he's doing this because there's actually a commandment about parents. Kids, you might not know this. I'm going to read this one to you. Exodus 20.12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I know you guys know that one. But there's a commandment. These 15, no, 10 commandments. Um, <laughs> they don't make movies like they used to, do they? But he, there's a command for this Jewish man to honor his mother and honor his father. So he's saying to Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with my command, and then I'm going to come follow you. He's actually following Jesus on his own terms. And what... That's the reason Jesus provides him this pointed response. But he's not just talking about physical death when he's talking about death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's saying, listen, let the spiritually dead bury themselves. The spiritually dead have to take care of themselves. We, we, we can't waste any time in following Jesus. Because Jesus is asking for something very big from this man. He's, he's making a statement about who he is. He's making a statement because of the commandment in Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He's, he's saying, he's aware, obviously, of this commandment. He's saying, you have to break that commandment because I am God and you will follow me and you will honor me above your father and your mother. Who are we called to honor above our father and our mother? God. So you can see that Jesus is asking for something really big from this man, but he's also making a declarative statement about who he is. Nope, let, let the dead bury their dead. I am the Son of Man. Follow me. Because honoring parents is not just a suggestion. It is a command. Honoring parents is not just a... No, there's one of you over there as well. Not just a suggestion. It's a command. <laughs> The only person that can demand that we honor them greater than our parents is God himself. Jesus is making a statement about his divinity. He says, you got to drop everything. You have to be willing to follow me at all costs because I am more important than everything in your life, even your parents. There is no time to waste. Let the dead take care of themselves and follow me. It's firm and it's direct. And you see, all of these statements of Jesus still apply to us today. That's why the motto here is all of Christ for all of life. That's actually what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But most of us don't really love that. Most of us want 
Jesus the way we want Burger King. Have it your way. I don't really want Burger King, actually. <laughs> it's disgusting. But we want this idea that we can like have it our way. We can kind of pick and choose, and we can design it the way that we want. Have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? I know a couple of you might have. No? I figured you would have. That surprises me. So Jefferson was a deist. He wasn't a Christian. And he went through six different Bibles in English, French, Latin, and Greek. And he took scissors, and he cut out the parts he didn't like. <laughs> he cut out things that he didn't really think applied. He cut out things that he felt maybe were exaggerations. He cut out things he just totally disliked. He removed everything about the resurrection, and it became Jefferson's own Jesus story. It's known as the Jefferson Bible. You see, we do this ourselves. It seems kind of flabbergasted. If you guys came in here and I was here with scissors, like on the Sunday morning at the table back there, boys are playing chess. What are you doing? I'm cutting out the parts of the Bible I don't like. You would all think I had lost my mind. Yeah, and probably, and hopefully stop showing up. But this actually happens all the time, and we are all actually guilty of this when we manipulate and change what God says to fit what we want it to say. We've seen this on an individual level, because all of us are guilty of that somewhere. It's my favorite. It's like, I mean, I know that God says not to do that one, but that one doesn't apply to me. That applies to all of them, obviously, Lord. But it actually happens at a bigger scale than the individual, too. It happens in the church world as well. What it breeds is, it breeds comfortable Christianity. And reality, friends, is that our Christianity is not supposed to be comfortable. I mean, look at verse 20 again. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How could we expect following Christ to always be comfortable if Jesus himself didn't even have anywhere to lay his head? This is why we are called to be in the world, but not of it. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that the te by testing you may discern what is the will of God, good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. Matthew 5.11, we covered this in the earlier uh, last year, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. James 1.1-4. 1, 1 James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You get the point. Nobody promised you'd be comfortable. It's actually the opposite. He said it's going to be hard, but you're not alone. And that's, that's the beauty of that whole section of Isaiah of Isaiah 53, is, is that beautiful language that God bore these things to carry them for us, that should be a great comfort. We actually shouldn't want it to be easy. When were any of you promised easy lives? Because the life of Christ is a life in service. And a life in service isn't an easy life because we have to put ourselves last. But what it is, it is, is a transformed life. It is a life of building. Think about this. We build families. We build businesses. We build communities. We pass around the toddler. Right? But that, it's like the best thing in the world. We get to pass the toddler around or the baby around during church because this is a family. And she knows it's a family. She knows every person in this room loves her and wants to see her. And everybody laughs and she, she eats it up. That's great. That is what we are building here. We get to restore, we get to love, we peacemake. 
We use the dominion that God has assigned us to beautify his creation. We build gardens and homes. We care for animals. We laugh. We love. We cry. It sounds like a song. We feel. We suffer. We break bones. We heal wounds. We have sick people in our congregation. It's not easy. Life ain't easy. It's a full contact sport. If you haven't figured that out. The world wants you to believe this lie. They want you to believe a lie that you can have your cake and you eat it too. That they want you to believe that it can just be easy and happy all the time. That everything can cater to your feelings and your desires and your wishes and all your dreams and, and desires can come true because you just deserve it. But that's not true. None of it is true. Life is hard work. That's grit. It's perseverance. It's getting back up when you've been kicked down. It's laughing. When, when all you have left to do is laugh, not this last outpost, but the week before, if you listen to my story about me eating it hard, trying to play a game of Nerf War, sometimes you need a helmet. <laughs> sometimes you, you, what'd you say? I did have a helmet. It was three sizes too small. I've been reading this book called Folks, This Ain't Normal. It's a farmer advice for happier hens, healthier people, and a better world. It's by, I think it's pronounced... Salatin, Salatin, Joel Salatin. You got to read it. It's a great book. But the very beginning of the book, it talks about like hard work and living on a farm and learning to grow and provide for yourself. He even reminds us that the reason teenagers are so valuable on a farm is they're full of energy and you can get them to work twice as hard as the grown-ups. But his whole book and talking about this is about hard work, faith, and life. And he makes this statement early in the text, in the book, that's really true. He says, out of sacrifice springs life. Parents, you already know this. Parents in this room have sacrificed incredible things for their children. Sleep, money, sanity, sometimes patience. Out of sacrifice springs life. Out of sacrifice springs life. There's life right there. She's, she's interacting. There is sacrifice, and out of it has sprung life. You see, that's what Jesus does. He heals us and restores us so that we can be in service in sacrifice, God bless you, to him. He sacrificed and gave us life, so we are to sacrifice and to live ours to give others life. Sacrifice sometimes means saying no. Sometimes it means saying yes. It, it may uh, mean adjusting life to ensure certain things, like, for example, real education can take place. Sacrifice usually means sacrificing your time and your desires. So why do we do it? Because it gives new life. Because Jesus sacrificed for us. You see, when a parent sacrifices in the right and righteous way for their children, it gives their children life. It, it props their children up. It allows their children to go out into the world and build and create. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He sacrificed. He healed. He restores our soul so we can go out into the world and serve other people. He heals us so we can stand up and serve. You see, when Jesus brings us new life and we sacrifice all for him, we actually bring new life and restored life into the world. It's kind of like the seed the seed's a fascinating thing. It's amazing what evolution does by accident. I kid. Think about the seed. It has to be destroyed before the tree 
can burst forth its roots years later, right? The seed has to break down, it has to decompose before new life is created. A sacrifice. See, that is the cost we have to pay to follow Jesus. We have to be willing to pay everything. We have to love him more than our parents. We have to love him more than our children. We have to love him more than anything in our world. We talk about the triangle. Anytime I draw a triangle in the air, it reminds me of Michael Scott from The Office. And Jim, as Michael's explaining to him the pyramid scheme, he's like, oh, so there's a guy on the top, right? And there's some guys below him and some guys below him. And he's drawn on the board, and then Jim just draws the pyramid over it. This is not a pyramid scheme. So when I talk about our pyramid. But God is at the top. And then your marriage, and then your children, and then your family, and then everything else. Now, that may sound harsh, and it may have even sounded harsh when Jesus tells the disciple that it's time to boogie. We got work to do. Let the dead bury themselves. But it's not. It's actually loving. Because here is the secret. If you don't love Jesus above everything else, you can't love anyone or anything else in its proper context. You can't love your parents until you know what the love of your heavenly Father is. You can't understand their sacrifice and their sin, because your parents are sinners too, just like you are, until you understand His sacrifice and His saving power. You can't love your children unless you know what it is to be a loved child of God. You can't even give your children grace and patience unless you really understand the grace and the patience that Jesus gives you. You can't even do well at your job until you love Christ above it, because that's what puts your job in its right place. See, otherwise you end up, and this was me, a bondservant to your company or your paycheck or your benefits. But see, when you love Christ first, work then becomes a tool the, the money that you earn becomes a tool to build his kingdom. There's nothing wrong with doing well and being prosperous, but there is something wrong for doing it for the wrong person. See, this is how I know all of this is real, because I'm a skeptic. I come to faith with a lot of questions and a lot of skepticism. How, this is how I know that it is the Spirit alone that draws us to Christ. You see, when God gave me new life, when he worked inside of me, he drew me to himself, and he called me to serve. Because up until that point, I only served myself. That was my experience. Made a lot of money for myself, worked really hard for myself, got all those awards hanging up in the office for myself. I hope that when we all leave here, we have the same amount of joy as she has running up and down the center aisle. It's amazing. But that's what really what happens. The Spirit works in us. God gives us new life. And then we are drawn to Him. We are drawn to serve Him, just like Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law. This is the service. This is the drawing of our heart that draws us to leave this comfortable space of agreeability and enter into an all of Christ for all of life. And that is one that will be met with challenge and unease. But that's what happens when you're in but not of the world. But here's what the most, maybe not the most, but here's a great and amazing part of this. Maybe it is the most, I don't know. When we are in Christ and we're not of the world, we actually end up more comfortable and more joyful despite all the hard work. The hard work isn't a drag. Did you know that the command to work was given before the fall? Work is good. Work for the wrong reasons is not good, but work is good. You see, despite the challenge or the suffering or the dirt under our nails or days of exhaustion, even 
the ones where we don't feel like we're making any progress. You guys know those days. You just work so hard and you work so hard and you get home and like, did I actually get anything done today? We have to stop thinking about it as individual progress. We have to think about it as kingdom progress. You are all a cog in the machine of God's economy and God's world and all of our gifts together working towards building his kingdom, even if we don't see it ourselves, are making impacts because we are here on purpose and we are part of the plan on purpose. That's why we're optimists. I think something that I should probably address that's not in my notes is that it's easy to wonder, I think, like, well, where am I in my religion? Where am I in my sanctification? It's a process too. The growth process in Jesus is a lifetime process. Nobody expects you guys all to be super Christian tomorrow, but it's a process of sanctification and a process of repentance and a process of grace because some days you're going to lose it and you're going to still sin. Hopefully, those are farther apart. But the differences in our toolkit is grace, grace that we know that we've been saved through so then we can extend that to the same other, to, to, to other people. That's the cost of discipleship, that life is tough and it comes with consequence. But it all has purpose. And isn't that the, the beautiful thing? Jesus restores all things. He heals all of us. Everything that happens in your life is on purpose. And everything in all of our lives serves God's ultimate glory. So that is why we are optimists and people who rejoice. We rejoice because we, we desire to live a life of meaning. And a life of meaning is one in service of the king. And if we are in service of the king, then we will be in service of each other. It's how we can love our enemies. It's how we can survive when things seem so difficult and so impossible. That's the path of the narrow gate, that when we have to enter in naked, where we, we leave our pride and we come as humble and meek in, in the realization that we need God to carry us. But the irony is that in that humility and in that meekness comes incredible strength. It comes victory joy, the ability to know that you can stand up and stand firm to anything, it comes life. The Spirit leads us to the narrow gate on a way that is hard, but leads to everlasting life. So my, my encouragement to all of you is choose life. Choose a life for all of Christ, for all of life. It's incredible. It, it is it flips everything on its head and it, it takes you out of yourself and puts you in the service of others and it brings you true joy. All of Christ for all of life. That's the cost of discipleship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending him to bear our sin, to free us from the penalty and to draw us in service of you. So, Lord, we pray, we pray as we exit this place, as we enter into the world, that we're not of it but in it, and that we're joyful, and that we're graceful, and that we follow you with everything, that you are more important in our life, Lord, than anything else that we have. Lord, fill us with your grace. Empower us to build your kingdom, and empower us to do it all with incredible joy. We pray this in your mighty and holy name. Amen.